0: Yeah, well, hello, I'm Jeff Forster. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a message series called Live Free, and this week we're talking about trusting God completely. So if you'd like to, uh, over the next few minutes, we'll be using the notes that are in your program. We'll also put the words up on the big screen, and uh, you'll be able to track along there with some of the Bible verses and the outline. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, right after Easter, many of us decided that it was time to get weird. We decided that, you know what, we don't want to be normal anymore because today in North America, normal means that we believe uh, that it's always a necessity to have a car payment and that normal in North America is that we don't have any money in the bank for emergencies and that we have a student loan that's been around so long we think it's a pet. We're up to our eyeballs in debt. The bottom line is that in America today, normal means that we're broke, and we don't want to live that way anymore. And so we decided we were going to look at what the Bible has to say. Jesus teaches that how we manage our money is a deeply spiritual issue. Jesus said it's all about our heart. He said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. So when God's people are financially free, they're able to accomplish so much good in the world. And oftentimes it's just from the excess, from the margin, from the extra. So around six months ago, a few of our groups, both in Sterling Heights and at our Emily City campus, uh, decided that they were going to do this exact same series in their groups. It was kind of a pilot program using Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And they began putting the principles that we're learning now, they began putting in place about six months ago. And uh, they've been practicing them since then. And guess what? It's working. It's working. So we have a video that uh, I wanted to introduce for you uh, from a couple who went through this program last fall, Ron and Winnie Pelegas. So check out this video. Hi,
1: uh, I'm Ron.
2: I'm Winnie. And I'm Anthony.
1: And we are the Pelegas. Uh, we joined the Dan- Dave Ramsey group, our, our small group, started it last fall. We had nearly $10,000 in credit card debt. Um, that was about nine months ago, and now...
3: It was like six months ago, (laughs) and now we only have $143.08 of debt left. That's it. And then it's dead and gone forever. Being part of that group experience just, it really helped out. We had so much going on, and credit cards were our emergency fund, and we knew that wasn't the way to go. But being in that group encouraged us, Um, every single one of them was a cheerleader to an achievement we made. And half of them have been been through the class two or three times. They were just really pulling for us and it it was really great. So to go from $10,000 of debt to 143 within the past six months was amazing. And it's, you know, when we decided to really start doing it, really commit to it, you know, we started praying about it. And over time, just, started rolling in, little jobs for you started coming in, and then it just found the place perfectly because um, this is what he meant for us and we were living in the way that he wanted us to. So it really does work.
1: we were living paycheck to paycheck. We had no plan. Uh, we had no budget. Now we map every dollar. It goes where we tell it to instead of where it wants to. And, and we have goals. We're reaching those goals, we have plans to reach those goals, and we're passing all the information that we're learning on to our son Anthony.
2: I didn't really understand about financing, because I would just spend and spend on anything that I see in sight without really thinking about a plan or how to save it. But then one day, one of my uh, my parents, Ron, my stepdad, came in my room saying, Nino, Nino, you gotta see this. I'm like, what, what? Because I really understand what's going on. And then when you show me how to how to finance, I was amazed. So now, the plan of tithing, saving. Now I'm able to spend the save it for later on future generations. Right now, I'm still not sure myself because I'm still new to this. But later on, I know God will give me the wisdom to do what what is needed to be on how to spend it, like to help others or to God, because I learn everything that doesn't belong to me but to him, and I'm grateful for that.
1: So I know it's difficult to follow all the principles that Dave sets out in this series. Uh, it's difficult for us, but do it. It works. It has changed our family. It has changed our finances. It's changed our whole outlook on the future. We're hopeful now instead of scared are, of what's coming we're free. To, at us. It's
3: what it is, we're free. We, we don't have to worry anymore.
0: Was it when really we six months ago? Yeah. that yeah. <laughs> out. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Go on, us. Go us. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. You know, uh, they're just one of many, many families already that jumped in on this. Last week, Tom and Judy talked about just in their group. They've paid off over $50,000 in debt, and they're just using biblical principle. That's all, when you take the the Financial Peace University thing, there's some uh, ideas that revolve around biblical principles. And we're not going to stop there, though. Now there's over 500 people at Heritage Church that are going through this same process right now. Some of you need to jump into it. It's not too late. But we've got over 500 adults, and we're gaining momentum, and we're on our way to becoming a debt-free group of people. Think about that. What would it feel like for uh, uh, an entire congregation of people not to have to worry about your car payment or not to have to worry about your house payment or not to have to feel guilty about some kind of uh, major purchase that you make? What would it feel like to cover um, uh, a major emergency with cash from your emergency fund? I believe that this is God's plan. God's plan, the way that he talks about money in the Bible is very different than the way that the rest of the world lives, but God's talking about freedom and peace. Most people wind up living in bondage. And so I believe that there are are five characteristics that are are true of most groups of people, uh, any church that would be walking in financial peace. And throughout this series, we've been exploring them. We'll continue to do so. Tonight, we're going to be talking about trusting God completely. But a person who's walking in peace saves money consistently, recognizes God's ownership, embraces God's mission for their life. God's purpose for their life, and then commits to lifelong generosity. But today, like I said, we're going to talk about that first one. A a debt-free person, a free person trusts God completely. And that trust is based on the issue of contentment. Here's our issue, though. As people, we like stuff. We do. We like stuff. Contentment's a really tough word in today's consumer-driven culture. We're living in the most marketed-to culture in all of history. You and I see more marketing, uh, advertising pieces uh, in front of us than any other group of people in history forever. So no wonder it's so much harder for us. People are coming after our money more than any other group of people ever in history. The average American sees over 3,000 commercial messages each day. 3,000 commercial messages each day. A child born today will likely see over a million commercials before they turn 20. So the purpose of all this marketing, all this uh, that they're trying to get your money from you is to tell you this, you need what we're selling. And I make jokes all about the salad shooters at night or some workout program you're never going to get at 2 o'clock in the morning. You go, I do need this. This is a great deal. Get on the phone call. But wait, if you call them the next eight minutes, we'll send you two. Right? So you need what we're selling. And the other thing that they tell us all the time is you need it Now right now. You need what we're selling and you need it now. And we're okay with that because we love stuff. Dave Ramsey calls it stuffitis, right? We're suffering from stuffitis. I've heard other people call it affluenza, right? We have the sickness of of affluence. A key symptom of stuffitis is nearsightedness. We can only see what's right in front of us and we're blind to the long-term consequences, and so we wind up, stuffitis, you know, invades us and infects us, and then we become nearsighted. We can only see what's in front of us. We're not really contemplating what's beyond, or we've given up on what's beyond, and so it's just about right now. So instead of working an extra job for a couple months to earn enough money to buy it, we just leverage our future. Don't forget, we're living in a, in a microwave world. I get frustrated. Back before Dave invaded my life and I used to go through drive-thrus, um, uh, you know, you get there, and if you wait more than you know, I pull in, I order, and then if I wait more than like three minutes, I'm like, what in the world? What are you doing, chasing the cattle around inside the restaurant? Right? What, three minutes? Oh, my goodness. We, we can't wait for anything. We live in this microwave world, and we're just used to getting anything that we want within 30 seconds just by pushing a few buttons. My favorite comedian, I love stand-up comedians, and my favorite comedian is Brian Regan. And uh, Brian Regan talks about that with regard to Pop-Tarts. Check out this video.
4: You ever look at a Pop-Tarts box? They have directions on there. Can can there be a simpler food item than Pop-Tarts? Like if the directions weren't on there, would somebody, what the? How do I get that goodness in me? What do you do? How do you get it done? You read, man. That's what you do. They have two sets of directions. In case you don't understand one set, you abandon that whole track and get on something a little easier for yourself. They have a set of toaster directions, which, believe it or not, is more than one step. How could there possibly be more than one step? I can only think of one. Step one toast the Pop Tarts. <laughs> Go ahead, toast them. <laughs> hey, are you still reading this? <laughs> but they've managed to break them into smaller increments. These are some of the actual steps. I would love to be in the room watching somebody who has to consult these toaster steps. Okay, number one, remove pastry from pouch. Okay. I see where they're going with this. We're banging on all cylinders now. <laughs> Number two, insert pastry <laughs> vertically. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> They're reading toaster direction. You're going to throw the vertical concept at them? have a whole set of microwave directions that just blew me away that you could actually microwave a pop-tart i mean how long does it take to toast a pop-tart a minute if you want them dark people don't have that kind of time listen if you need to zap fry your pop-tarts before you head out the door you might want to loosen up your schedule I swear it says microwave on high for three seconds. <laughs> I don't think I want to wake up and be eaten in three seconds. The alarm goes off. Ah, put them in. Ding. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> if you're waking, eating, and hauling in three seconds, you're booking yourself too tight.
0: That's the way it works, though, for a lot of us. We're just in a hurry, and uh, we got we, we to gotta be thinking about the fact that it's not just about what can happen in this very instant, in this very moment, and stop booking ourselves too tight. I thought that was hysterically funny, but that's, that's just how we are, isn't it? We want our stuff, and we want it right now, so this idea of contentment is very difficult for many of us to uh, uh, really embrace, but it's one of the values that the Bible teaches, Jesus taught it. The, the Apostle Paul, he wrote the second, most of the second half of the Bible. He taught a lot about it, this idea of contentment. So what's contentment? In the book Authentic Faith, author Gary Thomas says that contentment is soul rest, if you're filling in the blanks. Contentment is soul rest. He says it's satisfaction, it's peace, it's assurance, it's a, a sense of well-being that's cultivated by pursuing the right things in our lives. Instead of more power, more money, more pleasure, more control, we begin to really seek an abundance of grace and peace. So let me say it again. Contentment is soul rest. This is why we named this entire message series Live Free. So let me ask you, is your soul at rest? For many of us, the answer probably would be a resounding no. Many of us would say, no, I don't feel at peace in my life. Our souls aren't at rest. Instead, they're restless. They're restless thinking about the raise that we should have gotten, or they're restless thinking about the new computer that we want to buy, or we're restless thinking about a new car, a new house that seems out of reach. We're restless thinking about how our neighbor got a raise, and how our neighbor got a new computer, and how they got a new car, and how they got a new house, and we stay frustrated because we're comparing ourselves to others, or comparing ourselves to where we wanted to be and we're not yet, and we want stuff right now. We don't want to wait for it. So this guy, Paul, he writes this. He says, how I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. Okay, he's writing to this church in Philippi. It's in his book called Philippians. And he's writing to them, and they had just sent him a gift. Um, Now, the context behind this letter, he's writing from prison in Rome. And uh, so they sent him a gift while he's in prison. He got arrested because he was a Christian, because he was preaching about Jesus. They arrested him. They put him in prison. And from there, he says, I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Man, that passage cuts like a knife through our stuffitis, doesn't it? He's writing from prison. That's extraordinary. And he's saying, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in, I can be content. Jesus has taught me that I can be content in any situation. And so while I'm grateful for the gift that you gave me, I wasn't dependent on it because I found contentment. Think about it. He's in prison, he doesn't have any freedoms, there's no privacy, there's no assurance that he's ever going to be released. And so when he talks about contentment, it makes it even more powerful. He once had everything in the world before he became a Christian. He had power. He had prestige. He had respect. He had possessions. He was a very young man and already part of the Sanhedrin to be like the Supreme Court of Israel at the time. But now here he is. He's stuck in prison. And so they send Paul a a, a messenger, the church from Philippi, and they send a care package. And in chapter 4 of the book, he he says, thank you. I appreciate it, but... I can't thank you without stating very clearly that God's already given me everything that I need. It's like he's saying, thank you for sending this to me. That was indeed a blessing. But I want you to understand, you who are free and those of you that are well off, contentment isn't just about stuff. Contentment is a condition of the heart. And in Christ, all of my wants, all of my needs, all of my desires have already been met. So what does this kind of contentment do to somebody? It leads us to incredible levels of faith, dependence, so many people, so many of their prayers. Uh, So I've kind of done over the last several months, kind of an unofficial, I just keep track of it. Whenever I'm sitting in a group of people or whenever I'm leading a a, a group, and sometimes I'll pause and I'll say, does anybody have any prayer requests? And people will raise their hand right away. And the majority of prayer requests are, pray for my, my grandmother, she's sick. Pray for my aunt, she's sick. Pray for my uncle, he's sick. Pray for my friend, he's sick. It's sick. Everybody's, pray for Wellness, because lots of people we know are sick. That's usually the first prayer request we ask for, and then the next one, oftentimes, is somebody will say, "Pray for so and so." They're about ready to file bankruptcy, or they're struggling financially. And then, if somebody really is ready to get, you know, open eyes with themselves, a lot of times it'll, end with the group, they'll they'll speak up and say, "You know, pray for me. I'm struggling financially." We receive a lot of uh, prayer requests every week. We'll get, you know, several hundred prayer requests on the on the connection cards, and it's the same thing. You know, pray for sick people, and then. Pray for me financially. Pray for family members that are are struggling financially. It's like one of the top things that we pray about. And God says, I've got a solution for you. You don't have to be in so much trouble financially. And then we've all heard this often quoted passage. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. How many of you ever heard that verse before? Have you heard that verse? Okay. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. This is great, but we often forget that Paul makes this statement from prison and in the context of contentment. So when he says, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me, he's writing it sitting in jail, and he's talking about being content. That's a big statement. He says, because I have Christ in him, I can do anything. I can bear any burden. I can face any obstacle, and he gives me peace in my soul. Even in the pit of prison, Paul wasn't concerned about what he did or didn't have, he certainly wasn't concerned with what anyone else did or did not have. If he lost absolute everything and still had Jesus, Paul's saying, that's enough for me. So there's three characteristics of contentment. I don't think it's God's plan for you to be thrown into a Roman prison in the next couple of weeks, right? I don't think it's God's plan to have to take everything away from you over the next couple of weeks. But we can learn a lot from Paul's experience sitting in prison when he talks about this. So first of all, there's three big characteristics about contentment. If you'd like to fill in the blanks, they're in your program. I'll help you fill in a few, and it'll help you keep track of how long I'm going. Number one, contentment means trusting God. And I just added, and not Visa. I thought it was interesting, Ron and Winnie, they mentioned that their safety net was their credit card, right? So, I'm good. I'm trusting God. Uh Uh-oh, there's an emergency bill. Thank goodness for Visa, right? So, I say with my words, I'm trusting God, but oftentimes, the only safety net I have isn't God's way. It's, it's, MasterCard. So where do you turn when you have a financial emergency? Do you turn to God's word? Do you turn to God, God's people, or do you turn to your Visa card? People often, uh, when I'm talking with them, they'll excuse their lack of doing things God's way. They'll excuse their lack of savings by saying something like, you know, I'm just trusting God to provide everything that I need when I need it. And sometimes they'll use uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And this verse is a beautiful verse. It's a wonderful verse. But sometimes we take it out of context thinking that because of God, we don't have to have any plan to save or to, or, or to plan for the future. The Bible says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And so we'll sometimes justify our failure to plan ahead or to save by saying, Well, God's just going to take care of me. But the truth is, the Bible tells us to save money. Jesus is the Word of God, and he tells us. You need to plan. You need to save. In fact, Scripture says that only a fool doesn't save money. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. So if we're trusting God, then we have to trust His Word, and that Word tells us to save. So when we're operating from a position of trust, and we really are trusting God, and actually daring to apply His principles in our life, then we'll be prepared when emergencies come. God usually uh, uh, provides for us before the problem. You know, he's looking through time. He's looking through space. He knows what's coming for you. And so oftentimes, uh, most of the time in our life, he's already prepared. It's not going to take some kind of miracle at the last minute to provide for us unless we weren't paying attention to what he had already done for us, and we weren't prepared. So we put God in a situation where he'd already provided. We just didn't manage it well, and then we're confused why all of a sudden we're in trouble. So if we're trusting God and we're trusting his word, then His Bible says to save. But here's the issue, and this is true inside the church and outside the church. Seven out of ten people in America could not cover a $5,000 emergency this week. If you had suddenly a $5,000 emergency... Seven out of ten people in this room, in, in, in the, every church in this county, in every neighborhood in this county, seven out of ten people couldn't cover a $5,000 emergency without having to borrow money or pull out a credit card. But the Bible says in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. It's just the fool who spends everything that they get. So it turns out trusting God is a proven financial principle. It's true. If you trust God, you're going to do what he says. And he says plan for the future. There's a funny thing about God's way of handling money. It works when the market is up, and it works when the market's down. It's not dependent on whether or not the market is up or down. It works when you get a raise, and it works when you get laid off. God's principles of saving and planning work in the real world. These aren't just obscure concepts that would be nice if it worked out, but they're, they're the real world day-to-day wisdom of God. But it takes contentment. Number two, contentment means being thankful for what you have. Contentment means being thankful for what you have. Have you ever noticed what happens to your attitude about the things that you have when you start suffering from an attack of stuffitis and it has you focusing on something newer or something bigger or something better? Car fever is a perfect example of this, isn't it? Right? Uh, brand new car comes out in, as Americans. I mean, we love our cars. I love cars. You love cars. We love our cars. We'll sign up for a seven-year loan just to impress the people at the stoplight that we will never see again, right? We'll, we'll, we'll leverage our future for the next seven years trying to impress somebody. What happens when that car fever starts to take over, when it really begins to sink in? Once we start to check out the new models and we smell them and we touch the new leather and they got all these new buttons in places that ours doesn't have buttons and it's amazing. My rear end gets all warm. It's amazing. Once we start checking out those new models, the current ones, they they start looking worse and worse, don't they? Maybe you were in love with your car two, year, two months ago. You loved it. Oh, oh, God, I'm so thankful for this car two months ago. You were so thankful. But once you start seeing the new models, all of a sudden things begin to change, and suddenly the interior starts looking dull, and you start realizing the kids have spilled a bunch of stuff in the back seat, and the exterior paint starts to look faded, and uh, the brakes start to squeak all of a sudden, and there's some kind of weird noise in the engine. Well, we better get rid of it right away before something bad happens. Right? All this builds up until we come to the inevitable conclusion, and it's the only reasonable. By the time you and I decide to go and leverage the next five to six or seven years of our life for a vehicle, a brand new one, instead of keeping the one that we have, by that time we've been able to justify it, inevitably come to this conclusion, I need, it's not just a luxury, I need a new car, I need a safer car, I need a bigger car. It's funny how we convince ourselves that what we have suddenly isn't sufficient, it's just not enough anymore. We tend to excuse it because it's so common in our culture today. Everybody's doing it, so we do it too. But the harsh reality is that this attitude just isn't biblical. So when stuffitis begins to beckon, when it begins to get a hold of our attention, we need to repeat to ourselves Paul's words where he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I need to learn the secret of being content, being grateful for the things God's given me. And then number three, contentment means giving generously in all circumstances. And this is more of a symptom than it is a a requirement so much. It's not that, you know, contentment is I'm not content unless I'm giving. But if I'm giving generously, it's a symptom of me being content. Giving changes our mindsets, even when we have very little to give. I've been around people who were not wealthy, people who were very generous to the people around them. They'd see a need, they'd find a way to serve somebody. And I've seen people that uh, uh, had plenty that oftentimes would overlook an opportunity to serve somebody. It's not about how much you have. Contentment is about the way you view what you have giving a tithe or or, or sharing with somebody who's in need. They all serve as a reminder of ownership. They remind us of the fact that my stuff isn't really my stuff. It's God's stuff, and he's loaning it to me to manage it. It's a concrete recognition of the fact that God owns everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. And so when I choose to be generous, when I choose to serve somebody else with the things that God's given me, when I choose to give a tithe that demonstrates my contentment with what I have, being generous to others signifies my contentment and my dependence on God. Because I can't give if I'm not convinced that God's given me enough to meet my needs. I can't share with somebody else. I can't meet another person's needs if I'm not convinced that God already is providing for my needs, that God will provide for my needs tomorrow. Most of the time, a lack of generosity is just because of fear. It's because either I can live based on faith or I can live based on fear. And if I struggle with being generous, it's because I'm afraid I won't have enough, which hints at the fact that I'm not totally dependent on God. I'm not counting on God. I don't totally trust god i'm not trusting god completely because i'm afraid if i if i share with this other person if i provide for this other person maybe i won't have enough and god says you be generous and don't worry about it i'll take care of you god honors your faithful giving god honors your generosity Being generous is an act of obedience. God commands us to be generous to other people. It enables us to participate in relationship with God by saying, God, I am dependent on you. I am trusting you. I have enough faith in you that I don't have to hold a tight grip on what you've loaned to me, but I can loan to somebody else when you show me their need, and I'm going to trust that you're going to provide for me. It pulls you into a very deep, intimate relationship that you otherwise couldn't have. The emphasis, though, remains on God. The focus should remain, shouldn't remain on the things that we give, but on how God's going to bless us anyways. It's on God and others, not on what we can get. So then when we're responsible with what we have, the Bible teaches that God honors this, and he entrusts us with more. Jesus said, if you can be trusted with a little bit and manage it the way that I would manage it and do the things that I tell you to do with it, then I can trust you with more. He talks about that in every area of life, not just finances, but it certainly applies there of course that shouldn't ever be a uh, motivation necessarily for us to be generous with other people but it certainly is a great faith-based expectation and a tremendous benefit so let me wrap it up i'm not going to keep you all day we'll wrap up right here the world is not teaching me and you contentment the world is marketing to us discontentment so when we walk around and we see how the rest of the world lives They are not telling us to learn to be content. The world is teaching us to take what we can get and to borrow for what we want and to satisfy our desires immediately. But the world is not giving us long-term solutions. The world is not offering us a a, a real solid safety net. They're not giving us a way to live in peace because they don't care about us. They just want what we have. They want to take another dollar from us. It only focuses on short-term desires. Contentment is not a short-term mindset. It's a decision to maintain an attitude of gratitude and a consistent state of soul rest for the long term. God, I, I choose to go your way. I'm not going to rush into things. I'm going to go your way, and I'm going to trust that you're going to give me rest. Contentment is an active choice every day. I choose to be content, or I choose to be discontent. I choose to focus on the things I don't have, or I choose to be grateful for the things that I do have. And when I'm grateful for what I do have, I'm grateful for the one who lended it to me or lent it. To me. But when I'm discontent because I see other people with other things that I wished I had, then I'm starting to turn away from the one who loaned me what I did have. I demonstrate that I'm not faithful. And of course, he, he hinges blessing with regard to more with the way that I manage the little. But I get grumpy about the little and I want more now. And I begin to say, God, I'm not trusting you completely. So we wind up working against ourselves and against what God promises. Contentment makes us available for what God has in store for us. We can freely say yes when he calls us to go or to give or to serve or to do. A a commitment to contentment may make us uncomfortable at first. In fact, it probably will. When I choose to be content, it may be a little uncomfortable at first. Long-term solutions always cause short-term discomfort, if you're filling in the blanks. Long-term solutions always cause short-term discomfort. Discomfort, when I have a a longer view of life, when I have a longer view of eternity, when I have a longer view of what God is asking from me and the opportunities that God will give me over a lifetime, it may cause a little bit of discomfort today so that I can prepare for that tomorrow. It's that way when we work out. It's that way when we choose to have a salad instead of a steak. It's that way when we make choices in our life that that set us up for a better day tomorrow, it means that I'm choosing a little bit of discomfort today, certainly. Certainly but we have to learn to tell ourselves no for a little while so that we can say yes for the rest of our lives. If you missed last week's message, that's what what it was all about. We have to look past the stuff that we want right now and look toward retiring with dignity or look towards sending our kids to college without student loans or look forward to using cash to buy a car in three to five years or looking forward to having cash on hand for that roof repair or looking forward to having enough margin to be able to be a safety net for the people that we love and that we care about. So long-term solutions always cause short-term discomfort. Short-term solutions always cause long-term problems. So if we choose to go for the short-term, if we choose to go for the three-second microwave solution, then it'll always cause long-term problems. When we live paycheck to paycheck and we're meeting every single desire today, we're robbing the comfort and dignity that we could have enjoyed later in life. We talked about that last week, how if you just take a little bit over time, it turns into tremendous amounts. But instead, we're leveraging our, or we're losing our power and giving the interest to somebody else who's more than willing to take it. But when we begin to do things God's way, we shift the tables, and suddenly we've got interest that's coming to us and building wealth. So making difficult decisions today set me up for everything that I want tomorrow. We can have it today with sorrow later, or we can have it later with joy. The Bible says the blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. God says, if you go my way, I'll show you the way to wealth. I'll show you the way to being prosperous. I'll show you the way to being free. There's not any trouble that's going to come with it, but it's going to require some character up front. And this is what Dave Ramsey means when he says, if you'll live today like no one else, later you can live like no one else. Truly living like no one else requires a simple, humble joy and contentment with what God has already given us today. This may be the hardest message for us. We'll leave and you go, oh, that was a cute little message about contentment. Thank goodness it didn't last longer. And then three, four, five, six weeks, three, four, five days, three, four hours from now, there's going to be something that captures our attention and it's going to be discontentment that drives us to make or be tempted to make A dumb decision financially. What has he given you? With what has God entrusted you? If you don't think you have much to offer God, you need to take a closer look at your life. He's given you family. He's given you friends. He's given you opportunities. He's given you certain talents. He's given you uh, uh, skills and abilities and time. God has shaped you for his purpose. He's given you so much. He's given you everything. It's not a question of whether or not you have something to offer God. It's not a question of whether or not you have something to offer God. This is a question about what keeps you from offering what you have to him. That's what we're talking about, and it's always a contentment issue. So what is your stuff keeping you from doing for God today? It's not wrong to have stuff. It's wrong to choose stuff over God. It's wrong to have stuff have us. Trusting God will help you become content and experience true peace. This is absolutely fear versus faith and contentment versus discontentment are the two major battles in our hearts. This is why Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's why Jesus talks so much about money. This is a battle for our heart. And so my heart should be a faith-driven heart saying, God, I trust you completely. But fear drives me to go, whoa, I got to hang on tightly. I got to grab more, and I got to ignore the people who have needs around me. Fear drives me to not be generous. Fear drives me, uh, uh, you know, to to make bad decisions sometimes. And then the other side of it is contentment versus discontentment. We can talk about contentment today, but applying it is the battle of the heart. That's the hard part. But if I'm going to live free, and that's what this whole series is about, living free, I'm going to choose faith, and I'm going to choose contentment. Those are both heart choices. And if I make those choices in my heart and I change the way that I think, then I'll eventually begin changing my behaviors and my life, the outcomes of my life will change. So what we're asking is, are you going to be fear and discontentment oriented or is your heart going to be faith and contentment oriented? That's it. And that's a a battle that you have to wrestle with this week. That's a battle that you and your spouse or you and your accountability partner have to deal with. This week, if you're going to find long-term victory with regard to finances. Can I pray with you? So Jesus, we know that you have great love and care for us and that you have a willingness to challenge us even in the most difficult areas of our life, particularly with regard to our finances and the way that we view our things and the way that we view how we need more things. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you have a better way. And today we choose in this battle of our heart as we're thinking clearly and sanely and as we've contemplated your words, we choose in our hearts to live by faith and not fear, to live with contentment and not discontentment. Jesus, as we make these decisions, help us to live by them. Remind us of them hour by hour, day by day. Give us a farsighted view. Help us to see further down the road and the benefits of following your way for a little while so that we can do all the things that you say and, and invite us to for a long while. Help us to view our finances in the way that we manage them as a deeply spiritual endeavor. Help us to realize the power of a family that's free. Help us to realize the power of an individual that's free. Help us to realize the power of a whole church that is free, the kind of impact we can make in the world around us. Thank you for your blessings. Help us to live contented lives. Lead us to freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.